Hello there! My name is Fernanda Moura. I am a literary scholar, founder of Books and Culture, and this is episode 23 of the podcast, An Overview of English Literature. This episode is a continuation of the guided reading of Jane Austen's first published book, Sense and Sensibility. But before we start, I'd like to remind you to check out the website booksandculture.club and sign up for the newsletter. Books and Culture is an online platform where I offer online literature courses such as the Creative Reader Academy and Introduction to Literary Studies. And I have great news. Yes, the theme course, the Jane Austen Club, is now open. You can sign up anytime you want and start your Austenian journey. It is a four-module asynchronous online course, so you can follow it at your own pace. In the 14 lessons, you will learn more about Jane's private life, her relationship with her family, the Regency era, her early works, published novels, unfinished works, women writers in the 19th century, the critical reception of her work, the Jane Austen cult, and much, much more. And you can do so via the website booksandculture.club. You can also follow me on Instagram at books.and.culture, so you will be notified of upcoming online literature courses. So now let's talk about today's episode. This is the fourth session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I host these sessions live at the Books and Culture YouTube channel. Every Thursday at 1 p.m. Central European Time, I go live to read and discuss four chapters of the novel, offering contextual information and extra knowledge to make your reading experience even more meaningful. And based on a subscriber's suggestion, I've also brought this project to the podcast and overview of English literature, so that if you cannot join the live sessions on YouTube, you can listen to the audio version of the discussion here. I hope you like it. So it's time for our Jane Austen O'Clock at Books and Culture. Grab your own copy of Austen's Sense and Sensibility, a cup of tea or coffee, and read along with me. You can pause and continue at any time, and if you'd like to join one of the live video sessions, you can do so via the Books and Culture YouTube channel. Bear in mind that these sessions were not originally thought of as audio-only documents, so I apologize in advance if something is not clear or for long pauses. I hope you enjoyed this format, and I'd love to receive your feedback via email at hello at booksandculture.club. So let's get started with the fourth session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Enjoy. Uh, so last time, in our last session number three, we talked about the Dashwoods' move to Barton Cottage in Devonshire and their attempt at making it a comfortable home since they had to leave behind their childhood home, Norland Park, and they move into a new space and they have the chance to start a new chapter in their lives. Introduction of new characters, Sir John Middleton and Lady Middleton, the owners of Barton Park, so the main uh, state in that area where they're staying. Mrs. Jennings, who is Lady Middleton's mother, and we're going to talk about her today because she's quite a character. Um, she's very nosy and curious, and she likes to be uh, intervening with uh, other people's lives, especially young people's lives. 
Um, and Mrs. Jennings loves to play the matchmaker, a la Emma Woodhouse. <laughs> um, and she loves to manipulate, especially young people, into believing that there are attachments when sometimes there, there aren't. Uh, we also talked about the accident when Marianne ran down the hill. So that's a very important moment in Marianne's life. So we'll carry on from that moment onward. In the introduction of the mysterious and charming Willoughby, who is the one who saves, who rescues Marianne and catches her attention as a kindred, vigorous youth spirit. Remember that we talked about the differences between Eleanor and Marianne. Eleanor is the embodiment of sense from the title, um, and Marianne is the embodiment of sensibility. So for Marianne, everything is feelings, exaggeration, romanticism. And her belief of an ideal love was someone who thinks exactly the same. And she thinks she may have found this perfect match um, in Willoughby. And we also talked about one characteristic of Jane Austen's writing style, which is the intercalation of um, descriptive chapters. So more uh, longer paragraphs and a lot of descriptions, especially when introducing new characters or introducing new places and dialogue chapters, which are the ones I like the most because I think she's very ingenious in creating this uh, conversations. She's very good at exploring the webs of social relations in um, early 19th century. So before we move on to today's um, chapters, I would like to just show off my sweater. I don't know if there are any Gilmore Girls fans in this um, live. Let me know. So I was just, I felt completely in love with this sweater. It says mentally, I am in Stars Hollow. And Stars Hollow is the um, place where... I think, yeah, the fictional city where um, the series <laughs> takes place. Um, so here we are. Welcome. Do you have your tea? So my tea is here ready for our Jane Austen tea time. And we're going to start our discussion then with chapter 10. So it is a very nice chapter because it's, let's say, the consequences of the encounter between Marianne and Willoughby. So I already told you that I am using the, oops, this uh, edition of uh, Sense and Sensibility. It is the, um, the Cambridge edition of the works of Jane Austen, edited by Edward Copeland. There is a link in the description if you want to take a look at um, more information about this edition. I love annotated editions because of the amount of extra material. So you can find a very nice introduction here and a lot of footnotes with a lot of contextual information. Very go, very well. So here we go. Let's take a look at chapter 10. So Marianne's preserver, as Margaret with more elegance than precision styled Willoughby, called at the cottage early the next morning to make his personal inquiries. He was received by Mrs. Dashwood with more than politeness, with a kindness which Sir John's account of him and her own gratitude prompted, and everything that passed during the visit tended to assure him of the sense, elegance, mutual affection, and domestic comfort of the family to whom accident had now introduced him. 
Of their personal charms, he had not required a second interview to be convinced. Now, I already have something to add from this very beginning of chapter 10, which is the use of the term preserver. So Margaret, who is the youngest Dashwood sister, she refers to Willoughby as Marianne's preserver. Now, this term is uh, was a very common term used in popular fiction, novels of sensibility. It was quite a cliche at the beginning of the 19th century. And um, what Marianne read, and most likely Margaret as well, and their mother as well, Eleanor, not so sure, but what they read affected the way they saw the world and their own reality. So uh, Marianne read a lot of sensibility novels, and she believes that she's now finally the heroine of her own romance, of her own novel of sensibility. Um, so th the way she sees reality is not very objective. She constructs reality as she pleases, and this reality that she constructs um, is very much affected by what she has read before. And it reminds me of another of Jane Austen's novels, um, Northanger Abbey. I'm not sure if, if, you're, if you are familiar with um, Northanger Abbey. Thais, uh, let me know if you are familiar with this other novel. The protagonist in Northanger Abbey is Catherine Morland, and she's passionate about Gothic stories. She reads a lot of Gothic stories. She consumes a lot of um, Anne Radcliffe, especially The Mysteries of Udolfo is the book that she is um, reading during the, the novel. And her reality is also shaped by her imagination as a reader. So it's quite interesting. And we'll see how that theme plays out in Sense and Sensibility. Very good. So let's continue uh, with chapter 10. Uh, second paragraph. Miss Dashwood had a delicate complexion, regular features, and a remarkably, remarkably pretty figure. Marianne was still handsomer. Her form, though not so correct as her sister's, in having the advantage of height, was more striking. And her face was so lovely that when in the common cant of praise she was called a beautiful girl, truth was less violently outraged than usually happens. Her skin was very brown, but from its transparency, her complexion was uncommonly brilliant. Her features were all good. Her smile was sweet and attractive. And in her eyes, which were very dark, there was a life, a spirit, an eagerness, which could hardly be seen without delight. So here again, we have um, the contrast between Marion and Eleanor. So Eleanor is described as fair. So she was not necessarily beautiful. She was, um, uh, where do you see her um, description? She was, she didn't have a remarkable figure. Um, she had a correct form. So remember that Eleanor is all about being proper. Marianne was handsome. And she was brown with dark eyes and brilliant, um, brilliant complexion. So you see the contrast between the fair, idealized um, female character in Eleanor, the, the passive, let's say, at least in the beginning, um, female, and 
the the opposite, the contrast with the dark eyes and smart, wild Marianne. So you see here, her smile was sweet and attractive. And in her eyes, which were very dark, there was a life, a spirit, an eagerness, which could hardly be seen without delight. So look at the words that are used here to describe um, Marianne. A life, a spirit, an eagerness, right? So these are all words that belong to the description of uh, Marianne's character. And now let's see um, her connection with Willoughby. From Willoughby, their expression was at first held back by the embarrassment which the remembrance of his assistance created. Remember that they were very close because he picked her up and according to the social conventions of the time, that was such a scandal. So she was a bit embarrassed of remember, remembering that encounter. But when this passed away, when her spirits became collected, when she saw that to the perfect good breeding of the gentleman, he united frankness and vivacity. And above all, when she heard him declare that of music and dancing, he was passionately fond, she gave him such a look of approbation as secured the largest share of his discourse to herself for the rest of his stay. And here again, Marianne is connected with music. So music is a very passionate art, right? Uh, you get enraptured in music. You, it requires energy. And dancing is also a very passionate art. So that is uh, what um, Marianne loves and what she would like to see as, uh, let's say, the passions of her ideal match. In contrast, Eleanor likes to draw, which is a much more passive activity without an audience, right? It was only necessary to mention any favorite amusement to engage her to talk. She could not be silent. No, she cannot contain her emotions when such points were introduced. And she had neither shyness nor reserve in their discussion. They speedily discovered that their enjoyment of dancing and music was mutual and that it arose from a general conformity of judgment in all that related to either. Encouraged by this to a further examination of his opinions, she proceeded to question him on the subject of books. Her favorite authors were brought forward and dwelt upon, dwelt upon with so rapturous a delight that any young man of five and twenty must have been insensible indeed not to become an immediate convert to the excellence of such works, however disregarded before. Their taste was strikingly alike. The same books, the same passages were idolized by each, or if any difference appeared, any objection arose, it lasted no longer than till the force of her arguments and the brightness of her eyes could be displayed. He acquiesced in all her decisions, caught all her enthusiasm, and long before his visit concluded, they conversed with the familiar familiarity of a long-established acquaintance. So look at this. They are talking, and Marianne is questioning him because she wants to know all about him and to see if he matches her ideal of love, which is quite far-fetched, right? It's, uh, it will be quite hard for her to reach these expectations, these great expectations. But look, in this conversation, she sees that they, they like the same books, the same passages, the same music taste, the same dancing taste. So their taste was strikingly alike. That's what she wanted, right?
That was her ideal. And there is an interesting uh, footnote here. So uh, in page 450 that I would like to share with you. Um, let's see. Um, so he acquiesced in all her decisions. A seductive strategy taken by Sir George Belmore, the villain of Charlotte Lennox's novel, The Female Quixote. So that's an interesting uh, thought, right? Is that really that they are both extremely alike and have exactly the same taste? Or could it perhaps be Willoughby's seductive strategy to just pretend like he uh, accepts and agrees with everything Marianne says so that she would be interested in him? She's so caught up in this fantasy that she has created in her own mind that everything she sees, she does not see them objectively, but everything that happens around her and to her gets filtered through her imagination. Well, Marianne, said Eleanor, as soon as he had left them, for one morning, I think you have done pretty well. You have already asserted Mr. Willoughby's opinion in almost every matter of importance. You know what he thinks of Cooper and Scott. You are certain of his estimating their beauties as he ought. And you have received every assurance of his admiring Pope no more than is proper. But how is your acquaintance to be long supported under such extraordinary dispatch of every subject for discourse? You will soon have exhausted each favorite topic. Another meeting will suffice to explain his sentiments on picturesque beauty and second marriages, and then you can have nothing farther to ask. So here you see that uh, Eleanor is naming the authors that um, Marianne enjoys, and they are quite, uh, quite telling. So she likes Cooper, a poet, Walter Scott, um, the historical novelist, but also poet, and admiring Pope no more than is proper. So Alexander Pope was a very um, well-known poet in the, the, in the mid of the 18th century. So by the beginning of the 19th century, he was already old-fashioned and outdated. So to like him was, okay, yes, you know the history of literature, but to like him too much would be considered unfashionable. So his, um, Marianne admired Pope no more than it's proper you know, at the right amount of admiration. And they talked about picturesque beauty. Now, that's also a very important term because it brings a lot of um, different uh, connotations with it. Um, it's very much related to romanticism and the experience of nature and wild, the wild um, and the sublime. Um, again, a very... Um, important, let's say, popular um, uh, philosophical term at the end of the 18th century. So again, by the beginning of the, the 19th, it was already kind of a cliche. Uh, but uh, Marianne holds on to these exaggerated romantic cliches. You see here the, um, the footnote about rom picturesque beauty. An aesthetic theory of nature that by the 1790s, so at the height of Romanticism, had become something of a popular cliché, an opinion reflected in Eleanor Stone, but nevertheless a theory with considerable cultural power. Uh, so one of the theorists in, uh, in the picturesque, 
argues that the picturesque in nature, its ruggedness and irregularity, its scenes of high, low, steep and rocky offered a particularly English category of nature, a middle way between the sublime and the beautiful that was to be appreciated. Um, Price emphasized picturesque nature as the model for the gardens of great estates, focusing on the melancholy operations of time on the landscape. This is very interesting. So um, the comparison between human beings, the fragile human beings um, who live for just a fraction of time and compared to the grandiosity of nature. Um, so if you look at forests, um, big spaces, big national, uh, big uh, natural spaces, they will remain there for a long, long time. Generations of humans will come and go and the trees, the mountains, the ocean will remain there. So this contrast of feeling very inferior in comparison to the powers of nature is a feeling that was explored by romantic poet, uh, poets, especially. Um, and Eleanor brings this up when she's talking about the conversation that uh, Marianne had with Willoughby. Um, so another meeting will suffice to explain his sentiments on picturesque beauty. And then let's uh, continue um, looking at their conversation. Eleanor, cried Marianne, is this fair? Is this just? Are my ideas so scanty? But I see what you mean. I have been too much at my ease, too happy, too frank. I have erred against every commonplace notion of decorum. I have been open and sincere when I ought to have been reserved, spiritless, dull and deceitful. Had I talked only of the weather and the roads, and had I spoken only once in 10 minutes, this reproach would have been spared. She is, of course, being sarcastic because she was being natural. She was not being bothered by the rules, the conventions of society. So, you know, she tells Eleanor sarcastically, you know, I was wrong. I was too open. I was too natural. I should have contained myself. I should have talked only about the weather, a, a conversation that is meaningless, right? My love, said her mother, you must not be offended with Eleanor. She was only in jest. I should scold her myself if she were capable of wishing to check the delight of your conversation with our new friend. Marianne was soft in a moment. Willoughby, on his side, gave every proof of his pleasure in their acquaintance, which an evident wish of improving it could offer. He came to them every day. To inquire after Marianne was at first his excuse, but the encouragement of his reception, to which every day gave greater kindness, made such an excuse unnecessary before it had ceased to be possible by Marianne's perfect recovery. She was confined for some days to the house, but never had any confinement been less irksome. Willoughby was a young man of good abilities, quick imagination, lively spirits, and open affectionate manners. So normally she would hate to be confined because she likes to be free, to experience the wildness, to be outdoors, but this time, because Willoughby was with her, it was not um, irksome at all. And the fact that Willoughby came every day means a lot, right? Um, so he's showing that he has an interest. He, Willoughby, was exactly formed to engage Marianne's heart, for which 
For with all this, he joined not only a captivating person, but a natural ardor of mind which was now roused and increased by the example of her own and which recommended him to her affection beyond everything else. See again the word exactly like and by following the example of Marianne. So in fact, he mirrors her behavior, right? His society became gradually her most exquisite enjoyment. They read, they talked, they sang together. His musical talents were considerable, and he read with all the sensibility and spirit which Edward had unfortunately wanted. Remember when uh, Marianne had um, seen Edward reading and she told Eleanor, how could you um, endure that performance? He lacked energy, he lacked vigor, you know, you need passion to read literature aloud. But Willoughby had it, and she really appreciated it. In Mrs. Dashwood's estimation, he was as faultless as in Marianne's, and Eleanor saw nothing to censure in him but a propensity in which he strongly resembled and peculiarly delighted her sister, of saying too much what he thought on every occasion without attention to persons or circumstances. In hastily forming and giving his opinion of other people, in sacrificing general politeness to the enjoyment of undivided attention where his heart was engaged, and in slighting too easily the forms of worldly propriety, he displayed a want of caution which Eleanor could not approve, in spite of all that he and Marian could say in its support. Now, the words that belong, let's say, to Eleanor's vocabulary and her description, they all resonate from propriety, politeness, forms of worldly propriety, caution. And she knows that Willoughby and Marian are crossing social boundaries, that they should not be so openly about their feelings. Marian began now to perceive that the desperation which had seized her at 16 and a half of ever seeing a man who could satisfy her ideas of perfection had been rash and unjustifiable. Willoughby was all that her fancy had delineated in that unhappy hour and in every brighter period, as capable of attaching her and his behavior, as capable of attaching her and his behavior declared his wishes to be in that respect, as earnest as his abilities were strong. Her ideas of, of perfection, her fancy delineated. So it's all in her imagination. She's creating this reality, right? Her mother, too, in whose mind not one speculative thought of their marriage had been raised by his prospect of riches, was led before the end of a week to hope and expect it, and secretly to congratulate herself on having gained two such sons-in-law as Edward and Willoughby. So she's already counting it as certain. Colonel Brandon's partiality for Marianne, which had so early been discovered by his friends, now first became perceptible to Eleanor, when it ceased to be noticed by them. Their attention and wit were drawn off to his more fortunate rival and the raillery which the other had incurred before any partiality arose was removed when his feelings began really to call for the ridicule so justly annexed to sensibility. 
Eleanor was obliged, though unwillingly, to believe that the sentiments which Mrs. Jennings had assigned him for her own satisfaction were now actually excited by her sister, and that however a general resemblance of disposition between the parties might forward the affection of Mr. Willoughby, an equally striking opposition of character was no hindrance to the regard of Colonel Brandon. So there are a lot of oppositions in this book, right? So Marianne and Eleanor, Willoughby and Edward, and now Willoughby and Colonel Brandon. She, Eleanor, she saw it with concern. For what could a silent man of five and thirty hope when opposed by a very lively one of five and twenty? And as she could not even wish him successful, she heartily wished him indifferent. She liked him in spite of his gravity and reserve. She beheld in him an object of interest. His manners, though serious, were mild, and his reserve appeared rather the result of some oppression of spirits than of any natural gloominess of temper. Sir John had dropped hints of past injuries and disappointments, which justified her belief of his being an unfortunate man, and she regarded him with respect and compassion. Thais says, poor Colonel Brandon. Yes, he... Um, He's a very misunderstood man. He's very reserved. Um, he doesn't like to, to show off or to attract a lot of attention. And Ele uh, Eleanor now starts to pay attention to his behavior. And she comes to suspect that he had, um, he was hurt. He suffered by love in the past. And now to see um, his maybe love interest, Marianne, and to have his... Um, persona, let's say, compared with the lively young Willoughby was really hard, right? Perhaps she pitied and esteemed him the more because he was slighted by Willoughby and Marianne, who prejudiced, so another word that comes up, Eleanor, I mean, Marianne and Willoughby were prejudiced against him for being neither lively nor young, seemed resolved to undervalue his merits. Brandon is just the kind of man, said Willoughby one day, when they were talking of him together, whom everybody speaks well of and nobody cares about, whom all are delighted to see and nobody remembers to talk to. That is exactly what I think of him, cried Marianne. They are like two teenagers talking uh, bad things about Colonel Brandon. Do not boast of it, however, said Eleanor, for it is injustice in both of you. He is highly esteemed by all the family at the park, and I never see him myself without taking pains to converse with him. That he is patronized by you, replied Willoughby, is certainly in his favor, but as for the esteem of the others, it is a reproach in itself. Who would submit to the indignity of being approved by such women as Lady Middleton and Mrs. Jennings that could command the indifference of anybody else? But perhaps the abuse of such people as yourself and Marianne will make amends for the regard of Lady Middleton and her mother. If their praise is censure, your censure may be praise, for they are not more undiscerning than you are prejudiced and unjust. In defense of your protégé, you can be saucy. My protégé, as you call him, is a sensible man, and sense will always have attractions for me. So Eleanor really praises sense, someone being sensible. 
Yes, Marianne, even in a man between 30 and 40. He has seen a great deal of the world, has been abroad, has read, and has a thinking mind. I have found him capable of giving me much information on various subjects, and he has always answered my inquiries with readiness of good breeding and good nature. That is to say, cried Marianne contemptuously, he has told you that in the East Indies the climate is hot and the mosquitoes are troublesome. Still making fun of him. He would have told me so, I doubt not, had I made any such inquiries, but they happened to be points on which I had been previously informed. Perhaps, said Willoughby, his observations may have extended to the existence of nabobs, goldmores, and palanquins. I may venture to say that his observations have stretched much farther than your condor, but why should you dislike him? And now this is an interesting piece of information, and it's important for us to understand Willoughby's uh, speech here. He says that uh, Colonel Brandon could be talking about the existence of nabobs, gold moors, and palanquins. And this is a reference to um, the British Empire and its colonial enterprise, let's say, the colonial activities in India. So if you, let's take a look, 451. Um, so this is a crudely biased criticism of Colonel Brandon's colonialist career in its mocking reference to nabobs, those newly enriched and allegedly corrupt returnees from India to Britain, gold moors, the coins used for British trade in India, and palanquins, the luxurious and extravagant covered litters employed in carrying the nabobs about. So he's inferring, Willoughby doesn't know anything about Colonel Brandon. He's inferring a lot here and not in a positive light. Like he was someone who in the past went to uh, India to make his money and uh, with colonialism. And he came back uh, to Britain thinking, being f full of himself. But that's not the case at all. He's very prejudiced. Uh, Willoughby is very prejudiced. He doesn't know about uh, Colonel Brandon's past. I do not dislike him, says Willoughby. I consider him, on the contrary, as a very respectable man who has everybody's good word and nobody's notice, who has more money than he can spend, more time than he knows how to employ, and two new coats every year. Add to which, cried Marianne, that he has neither genius, taste, nor spirit, that his understanding has no brilliancy, his feelings no ardor, and his voice no expression. You decide on his imperfection so much in the mass, replied Eleanor, and so much on the strength of your own imagination, that the commendation I am able to give of him is comparatively cold and insipid. I can only pronounce him to be a sensible man, well-bred, well-informed, of gentle address, and I believe possessing an amiable heart. Again, the contrast between the two sisters. Marian uses the words genius, taste, spirit, ardor, brilliancy, all that is lacking in her opinion in Colonel Brandon's personality. But to, to Eleanor, what matters most is that he's a sensible man. He has sense, he's well-bred, uh, well-informed, he's gentle and has a good heart. Miss Dashwood, cried Willoughby, you are now using me unkindly. You are endeavoring to disarm me by reason and to convince me against my will but it will not do. 
you shall find me as stubborn as you can be artful. I have three unanswerable reasons for disliking Colonel Brandon. He has threatened me with rain when I wanted it to be fine. He has found fault with the hanging of my curricle, which is a two-horse carriage, and I cannot persuade him to buy my brown mare. If it will be any satisfaction to you, however, to be told that I believe his character to be in other respects irreproachable, I am ready to confess it. And in return for an acknowledgement, which must give you some, give me some pain, you cannot deny me the privilege of disliking him as much as ever. So look at the reasons, very superfluous reasons why Willoughby apparently doesn't like Colonel Brandon, because um, he wanted rain when Willoughby wanted the sun, and um, Colonel Brandon found fault with his carriage, and Colonel Brandon will not sell him a horse, the horse that he wants. That's why he dislikes him. Um, you see how Willoughby brings out the worst in Marianne, right? So they mirror each other's behavior and not always in a good way, right? Um, do you agree with this, how Marianne changes um, in the company of Willoughby? So in this chapter, chapter 10, we read about the connection between Marianne and Willoughby that's growing and how they affect each other's personality, how Marianne imagines herself a heroine in a novel of sensibility. She thinks when she's rescued by Willoughby and he turns out to be everything she thought her ideal love match would be, she thinks, oh, I'm finally starting my own life's romance. I'm finally the protagonist in my own love, love story. And it's all fueled by her imagination of having read Cooper, of having read Scott, of having read um, sensibility novels. Um, and she thinks she's found her ideal match in Willoughby. But there are certain hints here that maybe he's not as sincere as Marianne thinks him to be. Could that be um, one of his seduction techniques to persuade Marianne that he is everything she wants him to be, that he agrees with everything she uh, likes? And the poor Colonel Brandon and um, his mysterious past and how Marianne and Eleanor and Willoughby uh, act differently around him. So that was chapter 10. What do you think of it? Do you agree that Willoughby brings out the worst in Marianne? Let me know. Um, and in the meantime, let's start chapter 11. Whoops. So chapter 11 starts with some description, right? Remember, we talked about the different types of chapters in Austin's uh, writing style. Little had Mrs. Dashwood or her daughters imagined when they first came into Devonshire that so many engagements would arise to occupy their time as shortly presented themselves, or that they should have such frequent invitations and such constant visitors as to leave them little leisure for serious employment. Yet such was the case. When Marianne was recovered, the schemes of amusement at home and abroad, which Sir John had been previously forming, were put in execution. The private balls at the park then began, and parties on the water were made and accomplished as often as a showery October would allow, 
In every meeting of the kind, Willoughby was included. And the ease and familiarity which naturally attended these parties were exactly calculated to give increasing intimacy to his acquaintance with the Dashwoods, to afford him opportunity of witnessing the excellencies of Marianne, of marking his animated admiration of her, and of receiving in her behavior to himself the most pointed assurance of her affection. A lot of social engagements. One of the very interesting things about reading Jane Austen, let me know if you agree, is that um, is how Austen opens a window to the past for us. So we can look at how uh, people interacted socially in the beginning of the 19th century, what they did to entertain themselves, because these are people from the upper social classes, so they don't work. Um, so they just survive in a way, and they find uh, things to do, right? They have to occupy themselves. Some with serious things like, like reading, learning, um, learning other languages, learning how to play the piano. But uh, others were just, um, just cared about being entertained, right? About balls and parties and so on. Willoughby is one of these people, right? As long as he can just have fun and do nothing, it's all fine by him. Eleanor could not be surprised at their attachment. She only wished that it were less openly shown, and once or twice did venture to suggest the propriety of some self-command to Marianne. But Marianne abhorred all concealment where no real disgrace could attend on reserve, and to aim at the restraint of sentiments which were not in themselves illaudable appeared to her not merely an unnecessary effort, but a disgraceful subjection of reason to commonplace and mistaken notions. She just could not understand why one was supposed to hide their affections, um, to restrain their sentiments, to subject uh, oneself to social conventions. Why would you act so unnaturally? She does not understand. Um, and that's why she does not act according to that, which shocks Eleanor. Willoughby thought the same, always. And their behavior at all times was an illustration of their opinions. When he was present, she had no eyes for anyone else. Everything he did was right. Everything he said was clever. So he's, she's very biased, right? If their evenings at the park were concluded with cards, he cheated himself and all the rest of the party to get her a good hand. If dancing formed the amusement of the night, they were partners for half the time, and when obliged to separate for a couple of dances, were careful to stand together and scarcely spoke a word to anybody else. Such conduct made them, of course, most exceedingly laughed at, but ridicule could not shame and seemed hardly to provoke them. Mrs. Dashwood entered into all their feelings with a warmth which left her no inclination for checking this excessive display of them. To her, it was but the natural consequence of a strong affection in a young and ardent mind. This was the season of happiness for Marianne. Her heart was devoted to Willoughby, and the fond attachment to Norland, which she brought with her from Sussex, was more likely to be softened than she had thought it possible before, by the charms which his society bestowed on her present home. So Marianne is extremely happy 
all the sadness, all the pain, all the suffering that she felt for leaving her child at home are gone, especially because of Willoughby. Eleanor, on the other hand, let's see. Eleanor's happiness was not so great. Her heart was not so much at ease, nor her satisfaction in their amusement so pure. They afforded her no companion that could make amends for what she had left behind, Edward Ferris, nor that could teach her to think of Norland with less regret than ever. Neither Lady Middleton nor Mrs. Jennings could supply to her the conversation she missed. Although the latter was an everlasting talker and from the first had regarded her with a kindness which ensured her a large share of her discourse. She had already repeated her own history to Eleanor three or four times and had Eleanor's memory been equal to her means of improvement, she might have known every early in her acquaintance all the particulars of Mrs. Jennings' last illness and what he said to his wife, Mr. Jennings' last illness and what he said to his wife a few minutes before he died. Lady Middleton was more agreeable than her mother, only in being more silent. Eleanor needed little observation to perceive that her reserve was a mere calmness of manner with which sense had nothing to do. Towards her husband and mother, she was the same as to them, and intimacy was therefore neither to be looked for nor desired. She had nothing to say one day that she had not said the day before. Her insipidity was invariable, for even her spirits were always the same, and though she did not oppose the parties arranged by her husband, provided everything were conducted in style and her two eldest children attended her, she never appeared to receive more enjoyment from them than she might have experienced in sitting at home. And so little did her presence add to the pleasure of the others by any share in their conversation that they were sometimes only reminded of her being amongst them by her solicitude about her troublesome voice. Remember, Lady Middleton is a mother, so she only exists in relation to her children. Um, she would always bring them so she could always have a source of um, conversation peace if things got weird or silent. Um, so Eleanor is not happy there. In Colonel Brandon alone, of all her new acquaintance, did Eleanor find a person who could in any degree claim the respect of abilities, excite the interest of friendship, or give pleasure as a companion. Willoughby was out of the question. Her admiration and regard, even her sisterly regard, was all his own. But he was a lover. His, his attentions were wholly Marianne's, and a far less agreeable man might have been more generally pleasing. Colonel Brandon, unfortunately for himself, had no such encouragement to think only of Marianne, and in conversing with Eleanor, he found the greatest consolation for the total indifference of her sister. So in a way, uh, Eleanor and Colonel Brandon are the abandoned ones, so they form a bond and they see they see in each other a um, sensible person and good conversation. So they get closer. Eleanor's compassion for him increased as she had reason to suspect that the misery of disappointed love had already been known to him. This suspicion was given by some words which accidentally dropped from him one evening at the park when they were sitting down together by mutual consent while the others were dancing. His eyes were fixed on Marianne, and after a silence of some minutes, 
he said with a faint smile. Your sister, I understand, does not approve of second attachments. No, replied Eleanor. Her opinions are all romantic. Or rather, as I believe, she considers them impossible to exist. So, um, Colonel Brandon starts talking about second attachments, of the possibility of loving a second person in your life. Uh, not necessarily a second marriage, but um, loving a different person. And Marianne, her opinions are all romantic, so for her this does not exist, cannot be possible. You can only love, really love, truly love just one person. So Marianne does not believe in second attachments. So um, Colonel Brandon says she believes them to be impossible. I believe she does. But how she contrives it without reflecting on the character of her own father, who had himself two wives, I know not. A few years, however, will settle her opinions on the reasonable basis of common sense and observation. And then they may be more easy to define and to justify than they now are by anybody but herself. So Eleanor thinks that with time, now she's too young, but with time she will see common sense, she will see reason and sense and realize that this is nonsense. Look at her father. Her father married twice. This will probably be the case, he replied. And yet there is something so amiable in the prejudices of a young mind that one is sorry to see them give way to the reception of more general opinions. It's quite interesting. I cannot agree with you there, said Eleanor. There are inconveniences attending such feelings as Marianne's, which all the charms of enthusiasm and ignorance of the world cannot atone for. Her systems have all the unfortunate tendency of setting propriety at naught, and a better acquaintance with the world is what I look forward to as her greatest possible advantage. A better acquaintance with the world, with reality, not her own imagination, not Marianne's fancy romantic imagination. After a short pause, he resumed the conversation by saying, does your sister make no, no distinction in her objections against a second attachment? Or is it equally criminal in everybody? Are those who have been disappointed in their first choice, whether from the inconstancy of its object or the perverseness of circumstances, to be equally indifferent during the rest of their lives? Upon my word, I am not acquainted with the minutiae of her principles. I only know that I never yet heard her admit any instance of a second attachment being pardonable. This, said he, cannot hold. But a change, a total change of sentiments. No, no, do not desire it. For when the romantic refinements of a young mind are obliged to give way, how frequently are they succeeded by such opinions as are but too common and too dangerous. I speak from experience. I once knew a lady who in temper and mind greatly resembled your sister, who thought and judged like her, but who from an enforced change, from a series of unfortunate circumstances, here he stopped, suddenly, appeared to think that he had said too much, and by his countenance gave rise to conjectures which might not otherwise have entered Eleanor's head. The lady would probably have passed without suspicion had he not convinced Miss Dashwood that what concerned her ought not to escape his lips. As it was, it required but a slight effort or fancy to connect his emotion with the tender recollection of past regard. 
Eleanor attempted no more. Marianne, but Marianne in her place, would not have done so little. The whole story would have been speedily formed under her active imagination and everything established in the most melancholy order of disastrous love. And this is uh, the end of chapter 11. So Eleanor thinks she, because of this conversation and the way um, Colonel Brandon says that Marianne reminds him of another lady who had a similar way of thinking, Eleanor knows that something happened in his past, but she knows that propriety tells that you should not make questions. You should not be curious about other people's lives. So she just lets it go. But Marianne, if she were there, she would not have done the same. She would have created a whole love story, a whole melancholy drama um, of disastrous love. It's quite interesting. And uh, Colonel Brandon is uh, such a, a good character. He does not want to wake Marianne up from this romantic, naive, young way of thinking. He wants to let her live in that illusion for longer. Because after that... Life becomes too common sense, too, too dangerous, he says. So in this chapter, we learn, I mean, we already knew, but uh, we read more about Eleanor's unhappiness and she laments what she's left behind. Even the narrator, when talking about Eleanor, is more restrained. The narrator does not say Edward's name, but we know it's him she's thinking about. And Eleanor suspects Colonel Brandon was hurt by love in the past, but she does not uh, inquire any further. And we learn that Marianne does not believe in second attachments. You can only truly love once. Uh, so what do you think of this chapter so far? We're getting to know the characters better, and it's very interesting. They become such real beings, right? And let's move on to chapter 12. As Eleanor and Marianne were walking together the next morning, the latter communicated a piece of news to her sister, which in spite of all that she knew before of Marianne's imprudence and want of thought, surprised her by its extravagant testimony of both. Marianne told her with the greatest delight that Willoughby had given her a horse, one that he had bred himself on his estate in Somersetshire, and which was exactly calculated to carry a woman. Without considering that it was not in her mother's plan to keep any horse, because it's very expensive, that if she were to alter her resolution in favor of this gift, she must buy another for the servant and keep a servant to ride it, and after all, build a stable to receive them, she had accepted the present without hesitation and told her sister of it in raptures. So Marianne does not even think about the pragmatic consequences of having a horse. Yeah, it's beautiful that Willoughby gave her a horse, but it costs money and they don't have that kind of money. So the first thing that Eleanor thinks is practically thinking, practicalities, Marianne about feelings. He intends to send his groom into Somersetshire immediately for it, she added. And when it arrives, we will ride every day. You shall share its use with me. Imagine to yourself, my dear Eleanor, the delight of a gallop on some of these downs. Freedom, right? To be in the wild, in nature, fast on a horse. 
Most unwilling was she to awaken from such a dream of felicity, to comprehend all the unhappy truth which attended the affair, and for some time she refused to submit to them. As to an additional servant, the expense would be a trifle. Mama, she was sure, would never object to it, and any horse will do for him. He might always get one at the park. As to a stable, the nearest shed would be sufficient. Eleanor then ventured to doubt the propriety of her receiving such a present from a man so little, or at least so lately known to her. This was too much. You are mistaken, Eleanor, said she warmly, in supposing I know very little of Willoughby. I have not known him long indeed, but I am much better acquainted with him than I am with any other creature in the world except yourself and mamma. It is not time or opportunity that is to determine intimacy. It is disposition alone. Seven years would be insufficient to make some people acquainted with each other, and seven days are more than enough for others. I should hold myself guilty of greater impropriety in accepting a horse from my brother than from Willoughby. Of John, I know very little. We have lived together, although we have lived together for years. But of Willoughby, my judgment has long been formed. This is quite interesting, the way Marianne thinks. Intimacy is not about how much time you spend with someone, but it's about disposition. So how you spend this time together. So she's lived with her brother John for years, and she barely knows him. And she's known Willoughby for seven days, and she already knows in her mind that uh, she knows his character. But is that real, or is it, or is it an image of Willoughby that she has created in her own mind? So now the horse is an interesting example of how Marianne has to face the differences between the dream of felicity, the imagination, the ideal realm, with the unhappy truth, with the unhappy reality. Eleanor thought it wisest to touch that point no more. She knew her sister's temper. Opposition on so tender a subject would only attach her the more to her own opinion. But by an appeal to her affection for her mother, by representing the inconveniences which that indulgent mother must draw on herself, if, as would probably be the case, she consented to this increase of establishment, Marianne was shortly subdued. And she promised not to tempt her mother to such imprudent kindness by mentioning the offer and to tell Willoughby when she saw him next that he must be declined. She was faithful to her word and when Willoughby called at the cottage the same day, Eleanor heard her express her disappointment to him in a low voice on being obliged to forego the acceptance of his present. The reasons for this alteration were at the same time related, and they were such as to make further entreaty on his side impossible. His concern, however, was very apparent, and after expressing it with earnestness, he added in the same low voice, But Marianne, the horse is still yours, though you cannot use it now. I shall keep it only till you can claim it. When you leave Barton to form your own establishment in a more lasting home, Queen Mab shall receive you. This was all overheard by Mists and um, um, and Willoughby uses this intimacy with her. Uh, a meaning so direct as marked a perfect agreement between them. 
From that moment, she doubted not of their being engaged to each other, and the belief of it created no other surprise than that she or any of their friends should be left pampered so frank to discover it by accident. So the way they've been conducting themselves in such an open manner makes it clear to Eleanor that there has been an agreement, that there has been an engagement. Otherwise, it would not be considered proper to act in this way. Oh, Eleanor, she cried, I have a secret to tell you about Marianne. Oh, sorry. Uh, I skipped one paragraph. Let's see. Margaret. Margaret related something to her the next day, which placed this matter in a still clearer light. Willoughby had spent the preceding evening with them, and Margaret, by being left some time in the parlor with only him and Marianne, had had opportunity for observations, which, with the most important face, she communicated to her elder, elder sister when they were next by themselves. Oh, Eleanor, she cried, I have such a secret to tell you about Marianne. I am sure she will be married to Willoughby very soon, to Mr. Willoughby very soon. You have said so, replied Eleanor, almost every day since they first met on High Church Down, and they had not known each other a week, I believe, before you were certain that Marianne wore his picture round her neck, but it turned out to be only the miniature of our great uncle. But indeed, this is quite another thing. I am sure they will be married very soon, for he has got a lock of her hair. Now, this was another token of intimacy and affection, to have somebody's um, pro property, but especially part of their body. So part of their, of the late, having part of the lady's uh, hair, keeping a lock of her hair was something very intimate. Take care, Margaret. I may be only the hair, it may be only the hair of some great uncle of his. But indeed, Eleanor, it is Marianne's. I am almost sure it is, for I saw him cut it off. Last night after tea, when you and Mama went out of the room, they were whispering and talking together as fast as it could be, and he seemed to be begging something of her. And presently he took up her scissors and cut off a long lock of her hair, for it was all tumbled down her back, and he kissed it and folded it up in a piece of white paper and put it into his pocketbook. From such particulars, stated on such authority, Eleanor could not withhold her credit. Nor was she disposed to it, for the circumstance was in perfect unison with what she had heard and seen herself. Margaret's sagacity was not always displayed in a way so satisfactory to her sister. When Mrs. Jennings attacked her one evening at the park to give the name of the young man who was Eleanor's particular favorite, which had been long a matter of great curiosity to her, Margaret answered by looking at her sister and saying, I must not tell, may I, Eleanor? This, of course, made everybody laugh because it confirmed that there actually was someone. And Eleanor tried to laugh too, but the effort was painful. Talking about her feelings is always painful for, me, for Eleanor. She was convinced that Margaret had fixed on a person whose name she could not bear with composure to become a standing joke with Mrs. Jennings. Marianne felt for her most sincerely, but she did more harm than good to the cause by turning very red and saying in an angry manner to Margaret. Remember that whatever your conjectures may be, you have no right to repeat them. I never had any conjectures about it, replied Margaret. 
It was you who told me of it yourself. This increased the mirth of the company, and Margaret was eagerly pressed to say something more. Oh, pray, Miss Margaret, let us know all about it, said Mrs. Jennings, always uh, nosy about other people's business, especially love-related. What is the gentleman's name? I must not tell, ma'am, but I know very well what it is, and I know where he is, too. Yes, yes, we can guess where he is, at his own house at Norland, to be sure. He is the curate of, curate of the parish, I dare say. No, that he is not. He is of no profession at all. Margaret, said Marianne with great warmth, you know that all this is an invention of your own and that there is no such person in existence. Well, then he's lately dead, Marianne, for I am sure there was such a man once and his name begins with an F. <laughs> so it's such a funny dialogue because Marianne is trying to... Um, end the conversation because she knows that it's painful for Eleanor to talk about her feelings. But Margaret, as a very young girl, I think she's 12, she doesn't get it. So she wants to be believed because she's telling the truth. So she ends up giving more and more information. Um, most grateful did Eleanor feel to Lady Middleton for observing at this moment that it rained very hard though she believed the interruption to proceed less from any attention to her than from her ladyship's great dislike of all such inelegant subjects of raillery as delighted her husband and mother. The idea, however, started by her was immediately pursued by Colonel Brandon, who was on every occasion mindful of the feeling of others, and much was said on the subject of rain by both of them. How nice, huh? Um, Colonel Brandon noticed that Eleanor was not comfortable, so he picked up the conversation about the rain and to kill off the other uh, conversation. Willoughby opened the pianoforte and asked Marianne to sit down to it. And thus, amidst the various endeavors of different people to quit the topic, it fell to the ground. But not so easily did Eleanor recover from the alarm into which it, ha into which it had thrown her. A party was formed this evening for going on the following day to see a very fine place, about 12 miles from Barton, belonging to a brother-in-law of Colonel Brandon, without whose interest it could not be seen, as the proprietor, who was then abroad, had left strict orders on that head. The grounds were declared to be highly beautiful, and Sir John, who was particularly warm in their praise, might be allowed to be a tolerable judge for he had formed parties to visit them at least twice every summer for the last 10 years. They contained a noble piece of water, a sail on which was to form a great part of the morning's amusement. Cold provisions were to be taken, open carriages only to be employed, and everything conducted in the usual style of a complete party of pleasure. To some few of the company, it appeared rather a bold undertaking, considering the time of year, and that it had rained every day for the last fortnight. And Mrs. Dashwood, who had already a cold, was persuaded by Eleanor to stay at home. Now, this is something that was quite common at the time. So all these beautiful estates. So, for instance, uh, Norland Park, um, where the, the Dashwoods lived. Here they're talking about a very fine place, about 12 miles from Barton, probably a large um, estate, the beautiful house and gardens. Uh, it was common for people to visit them. Um, let's take a look at the note. It's quite interesting. Page 454. Um, 
some contextual, sorry, some contextual information. So a fine place was a house known for its architecture and gardens. In the late 18th century, country house visiting became common among the polite classes with access obtained by a genteel appearance, tips to the porter or housekeeper, or in some cases by prearranged private permission, like in this case. To control the numbers, some owners established a system of tickets, guidebooks, and limited days of access. Others, like Colonel Brandon's relation, simply denied all access to the public. So perhaps this reminds you of Pride and Prejudice. So um, Elizabeth Bennett is uh, going for a walk with her aunt and uncle, the Palmers, if I'm not mistaken. And they come close to Pemberley, the state of Mr. Darcy. And they are curious to see how it looks. So they go there and they ask the housekeeper, you can never talk to the owner of the house. That is not allowed. But you can talk to the housekeeper and ask for permission to look at the grounds or to look at the property. In that, in uh, Pride and Prejudice, the house was empty. So the housekeeper, um, and of course, you had to be for more or less the same social standing, uh, a working class uh, person would not be allowed in. But um, someone from the upper class um, maybe would get access to look at the grounds. So that's quite interesting, right? So that's what they plan to do on the next day, to go visit this beautiful property with uh, Colonel Brandon because it belongs to one of his relatives. So Colonel Brandon has to be with them so they are allowed in. And this is the end of chapter 12. So here we see the attachment and engagement between Marianne and Willoughby, as everyone thinks it's happening. Uh, it becomes clearer and clearer because of the horse that he gives her as a gift, the lock of hair, their behavior very openly. But Eleanor hides her feelings for Edward and she's being teased by the others, especially Mrs. Jennings, who wants to know all about people's private business. All right, so let's move on to chapter 13, the last one we're going to discuss today. And they are ready to go on this excursion to this fine property. Their intended excursion to Whitwell turned out very differently from what Eleanor had expected. She was prepared to be wet through, fatigued and frightened. But the event was still more unfortunate for did, they did not go at all. By 10 o'clock, the whole party were assembled at the park where they were to breakfast. The morning was rather favorable, though it had rained all night, as the clouds were then dispersing across the sky and the sun frequently appeared. They were all in high spirits and good humor, eager to be happy, and determined to submit to the greatest inconveniences and hardships rather than be otherwise. While they were at breakfast, the letters were brought in. Among the rest, there was one for Colonel Brandon. He took it, looked at the direction, changed color, and immediately left the room. What is the matter with Brandon? said Sir John. Nobody could tell. I hope he has had no bad news, said Lady Middleton. It must be something extraordinary that could make Colonel Brandon leave my breakfast table so suddenly. In about five minutes, he returned. No bad news, Colonel, I hope, said Mrs. Jennings as soon as he entered the room. So she's already curious. None at all, ma'am, I thank you. Was it from Avignon? I hope it is not to say that your sister is worse. No, ma'am, it came from town, so from London, and is merely a letter of business. 
But how came the hand to discompose you so much if it was only a letter of business? Come, come, this won't do, Colonel, so let us hear the truth of it. My dear madam, said Lady Middleton, her daughter, recollect what you're saying. So Mr. Jennings is lacking propriety here. She's asking too many questions. She's too curious, and that's not proper. So even her daughter says, recollect what you're saying. Perhaps it is to tell you that your cousin Fanny is married, said Mrs. Jennings, without attending to her daughter's reproof. No, indeed, it is not. Well, then, I know who it is from, Colonel, and I hope she's well. What do you mean, madam? said he, coloring a little. Oh, you know who I mean. I am particularly sorry, ma'am, said he, addressing Lady Middleton, that I should receive this letter today, for it is on business which requires my immediate attendance in town. In town, cried Mrs. Jennings, what can you have to do in town at this time of the year? At this time of the year, why would that be the case that no one should be in London at this time of the year? So that's an interesting contextual information. Um, let me share it with you. Um, number three. This time of year. Land-owning classes, so the, the higher classes that owned property, they spent the autumn in the country for the hunting season and the Christmas holidays. They returned to London in February for Parliament or a month or so later for the social season. So in October, no one is in London, the higher classes, because it is a time of year for hunting, for being in the countryside. My own loss is great, he continued, in being obliged to leave so agreeable a party, but I am the more concerned as I fear my presence is necessary to gain your admittance at Whitwell. What a blow upon them all was upon them all was this. But if you write a note to the housekeeper, Mr. Brandon, said Marian eagerly, will it not be sufficient? He shook his head. We must go, said Sir John. It shall not be put off when we are so near it. You cannot go to town till tomorrow, Brandon, that is all. I wish it could be so easily settled, but it is not in my power to delay my journey for one day. If you would, but let us know what your business is, said Mrs. Jennings. We might see whether it could be put off or not. We might see. So she's acting as if it's her business. You would not be six hours later, said Willoughby, if you were to defer your journey till our return. I cannot afford to lose one hour. Eleanor then heard Willoughby say in a low voice to Marian, there are some people who cannot bear a party of pleasure. Brandon is one of them. He was afraid of catching cold, I dare say, and invented this trick for getting out of it. I would lay 50 guineas the letter was of his own writing. I have no doubt of it, replied Marianne. See how childish they are, they are how, yeah, how terrible they are behaving, right? Again, I, I, I say what I mentioned before, that Willoughby brings out the worst in Marianne. There is no persuading you to change your mind, Brandon, I know of old said Sir John, when once you are determined on anything. But, however, I hope you will think better of it. Consider, here are the two Miss Carries come over from Newton, and the three Miss Dashwoods walked up from the cottage, and Mr. Willoughby got up two hours before his usual time on purpose to go to Whitwell. 
Colonel Brandon again repeated his sorrow at being the cause of disappointing the party, but at the same time declared it to be unavoidable. Well then, when will you come back again? I hope we shall see you at Barton, added her ladyship, as soon as you can conveniently leave town and we must put off the party to Whitwell till you return. You are very obliging, but it is so uncertain when I must when I may have it in my power to return, that I dare not engage for it at all. Oh, he must and he shall come back, cried Sir John. If he is not here by the end of the week, I shall go after him. I so do, Sir John, cried Mrs. Jennings, and then perhaps you may find out what his business is. I do not want to pry into other men's concerns. I suppose it is something he is ashamed of. Colonel Brydon's horses were announced. You do not go to town on horseback, do you? added Sir John. No, only to Honington. I shall then go post. Now you might be wondering, what does it mean to go post? This is very interesting, another contextual information. So, to go post is to travel at some expense in a hired post chaise, with fresh horses supplied from one posting house to the next. That was the quickest way to travel. The most convenient posting house, an inn set up with horses, carriages, and attendants to take care of the business, is at Huntington, a real town four or five miles to the east of the fictional Barton. So he needs to get to London as soon as possible. So he's going post, so he's going to pay more to, uh, to be able to go whenever he wants. So he will uh, rent, let's say, carriages and horses and change them at every uh, station. So then you get fresh horses. Well, as you are resolved to go, I wish a good journey. But you had better change your mind. I assure you, it is not in my power. He then took leave of the whole party. Is there no chance of my seeing you and your sisters in town this winter, Miss Dashwood? I'm afraid none at all. Then I must bid you farewell for a longer time than I should wish to do. To Marianne, he merely bowed and said nothing. Come, Colonel, said Mrs. Jennings. Before you go, do let us know what you are going about. She's, a, she's such an annoying character at times, huh? He wished her a good morning and, attended by Sir John, left the room. The complaints and lamentations which politeness had hitherto restrained now burst forth universally, and they all agreed again and again how provoking it was to be so disappointed. I can guess what his business is, however, said Mrs. Jennings exultingly. Can you, ma'am? said almost everybody. Yes, it is about Miss Williams, I'm sure. And who is Miss Williams? asked Marianne. What? Do not you know who Miss Williams is? I am sure you must have heard of her before. She is a relation of the colonels, my dear, a very near relation. We will not say how near for fear of shocking the young ladies. So she's spreading gossip. Hmm? Then lowering her voice a little, she said to Eleanor, she is his natural daughter, which means um, an illegitimate daughter because Colonel Brandon was not married. Indeed. Oh, yes. And as like him as she can stare, I dare say the Colonel will leave her all his fortune. When Sir John returned, he joined most heartily in the general regret on so unfortunate an event, concluding, however, by observing that as they were all got together, they must do something by way of being happy. And after some consultation, it was agreed 
that although happiness could only be enjoyed at Whitwell, they might procure a tolerable composure of mind by driving about the country. The carriages were then ordered. Willoughby's was first, and Marianne never looked happier than when she got into it. He drove through the park very fast, and they were soon out of sight. And nothing more of them was seen till their return, which did not happen till after the return of all the rest. They both seemed delighted with their drive, but said only in general terms that they had kept in the lanes while the others went on the downs. It was settled that there should be a dance in the evening, and that everybody should be extremely merry all day long. Some more of the carries came to dinner, and they had the pleasure of sitting down nearly twenty to table, which Sir, Sir John observed with great contentment. Willoughby took his usual place between the two elder Miss Dashwoods. Mrs. Jennings sat on Eleanor's right hand, and they had not been long seated before she leant behind her and Willoughby and said to Marianne, loud enough for them both to hear, I have found you out in spite of all your tricks. I know where you spent the morning. Marianne colored and replied very hastily, Where, pray? Did not you know, said Willoughby, that we had been out in my curricle? Kind of carriage. Yes, yes, Mr. Impudence, I know that very well, and I was determined to find out where you had been to. I hope you like your house, Miss Marianne. It is a very large one, I know, and when I come to see you, I hope you will have new furnished it, for it wanted it very much when I was there six years ago. Marianne turned away in great confusion. Mrs. Jennings laughed heartily, and Eleanor found that in her resolution to know where they had been, she had actually made her own woman inquire of Mr. Willoughby's groom, and that she had by that method been informed that they had gone to Allenham and spent a considerable time there in walking about the garden and going all over the house. So look at the lengths that Mrs. Jennings will go to find out the truth and to satisfy her curiosity. Eleanor could hardly believe this to be true, as it seemed very unlikely that Willoughby should propose or Marianne consent to enter the house while Mrs. Smith was in it, with whom Marianne had not the smallest acquaintance. So it was not considered to be proper to go to someone's house and to enter when the host, when the owner of the house is in and you are not familiar with the host. You first need to be introduced. And they were there in the house when the owner was inside the old end of Willoughby, even though Marianne di didn't know her. As soon as they left the dining room, Eleanor inquired of her about it, and great was her surprise when she found that every circumstance related by Mrs. Jennings was perfectly true. Marianne was quite angry with her for doubting it. Why should you imagine, Eleanor, that we did not go there or that we did not see the house? Is not it what you have often wished to do yourself? Yes, Marianne, but I would not go while Mrs. Smith was there and with no other companion than Mr. Willoughby. Mr. Willoughby, however, is the only person who can have a right to show that house. And as we went in an open carriage, it was impossible to have any other companion. I never spent a pleasanter morning in my life. I am afraid, replied Eleanor, that the pleasantness of an employment does not always evince its propriety. 
On the contrary, nothing can be a stronger proof of it, Eleanor. For if there had been any real impropriety in what I did, I should have been sensible of it at the time. For we always know when we are acting wrong, and with such a conviction I could have had no pleasure. But, my dear Marianne, as it has already exposed you to some very impertinent remarks, do you not now begin to doubt the discretion of your own conduct? If the impertinent remarks of Mrs. Jennings are to be the proof of impropriety in conduct, we are all offending every moment of our lives. I value not her censor any more than I should do her commendation. I am not sensible of having done anything wrong in walking over Mrs. Smith's grounds or in seeing her house. They will one day be Mr. Willoughby's and... If they were one day to be your own, Marian, you would not be justified in what you have done. She blushed at this hint, but it was even visibly gratifying to her. And after a ten minutes interval of earnest thought, she came to her sister again and said with great good humor... Perhaps, Eleanor, it was rather ill-judged in me to go to Allenham, but Mr. Willoughby wanted particularly to show me the place, and it is a charming house, I assure you. There is one remarkably pretty sitting room upstairs, of a nice, comfortable size for constant use, and with modern furniture it will be delightful. It is a corner room and has windows on two sides. On one side you look across the bowling green behind the house to a beautiful hanging wood, and on the other you have a view of the church and village, and beyond them of those fine bold hills that we have so often admired. I did not see it to advantage, for nothing could be more forlorn than the furniture, but if it were newly fitted up, a couple of hundred pounds, Willoughby says, would make it one of the pleasantest summer rooms in England. Could Eleanor have listened to her without interruption from the others, she would have described every room in the house with equal delight. And that is the end of chapter 13. So we see here that something important happens. Colonel Brandon receives an urgent letter from London and he has to leave immediately, which means that the, the party cannot go on to, um, uh, what's the name of the place again? Um, Whitwell, because they needed Colonel Brandon's presence. So they have to cancel. Mrs. Jennings is very annoying. She uh, spreads a rumor that um, Colonel Brandon left London because he needed to deal with Miss Williams, who is supposedly his um, illegitimate daughter. Um, and so they have to do something else to have fun because that's what they do. They entertain themselves. They don't work. Um, and um, Marion... Marianne and Willoughby go into a carriage and go visit Elmham House, which is the house that belongs now to Willoughby's aunt, but that he will inherit. So here we are. I hope you've enjoyed this fourth session of the guided reading of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I will be uploading the sessions as audio-only documents in this podcast in the upcoming weeks. Next time, we'll read and discuss chapters 14 to 17. And remember, if you want to know more about Jane Austen, her world and literary career, sign up for the online course, The Jane Austen Club, on the website booksandculture.club. Stay tuned and until the next stop in our journey through English literature. Remember, you can find me on Instagram at books.and.culture. 
For ideas for future episodes or comments, you can send me an email at hello at booksandculture.club. See you next time.